0: Uh, where you had um, a man in the church there in Corinth who was having a um, sexual relationship with his stepmom, um, and people in the church weren't doing anything about that. They were just kind of letting that go on. Uh, in fact, the church in Corinth was you know, having multiple difficulties. Uh, they were having divisions. Uh, they are being prideful about what they tolerate in the church and that, how accepting they are of various things. Um, and so the Apostle Paul is really having to work to get this church back on uh, back on track uh, to recalibrate uh, the church's compass back towards Jesus. Uh, you know, remember the Apostle Paul had started this church; he had lived in Corinth for over two years, and um, you know it's got to break his heart to see the things that have been happening here, and that's going to kind of continue. It's you know we're in the stage of the book where the Apostle Paul is really laying out all the negative things that are going on, things that have to be addressed, um, that things are going to have that kind of continuous theme of uh, here's what's wrong, here's what you need to do to, to correct these things. Uh, but then don't, um, we don't want to miss in this the great hope and instruction that is given you know, for every church, um, for all time um, that's in it. And there's some really powerful things throughout the book. That are very encouraging and very hopeful. You know, as as he writes this, I think sometimes you know we get um, we can get kind of moody, we can get depressed, we can get down, we can get kind of negative. And while Paul is is having to address this, I don't believe that in any way he's lost his hope about the reality of the true fruit that is present in the church in Corinth or um, the their future and the church that the, that this church can be. And so we need to keep that in mind as in these pages, things can seem to be pretty dark um, and bleak as far as what's going on, that uh, there is hope here as well. So let's keep that in mind as we uh, look at chapter 6 this morning. Let's go ahead and, and pray again and then we'll, we'll hop right into our lesson. Um, Heavenly Father, we, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that uh, we can love you because you first loved us and you sent Jesus for us to die on the cross for our sins, uh, to be risen from the dead, uh, to have victory over sin and death, and that we can participate in that victory. And Lord, those of us who have already participated in that victory, that we have believed in you, Jesus, please help us not to go back into the things that you saved us from. Uh, Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to, to know you, to honor you, to live for you. And Lord, we pray for those who don't know you yet, that they would see the reality that you save people's lives, both for eternity and, and also for the present, Lord. Um, and that you your way is better. And just uh, please drive that point home to us. Uh, and make that real in each person's heart, we pray. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, so let's read uh, the first few verses of chapter, chapter 6. Um, and in this, you're going to see throughout the whole. The, in this chapter, uh, you know, when Paul writes the letter, we have to understand. There's not chapters and verses. It's just, you know, he writes out this letter. We use chapters and verses to help us to all be able to be on the same page and to understand, you know, what we are, where we are, and, and what's going on. Um, it's, but in, in this section that we call Chapter Six, um, the Apostle Paul actually asks, you know, ten questions. He's using, you know, kind of a very um, Greek method of teaching of of proposing questions, and then, uh, you know, he's going to give some answers uh, to those questions, but he's using the questions to uh, help people to discern what's true and false and to help lay out what they need to know and what they need to understand. But he wants to put these questions uh, to their minds to really get them to consider these things. Um, He doesn't just make statements. The same thing's true, you know, when Jesus teaches. Jesus asks a lot of questions to people because he wants them to think about and to consider who they are and what they believe and where they're at and where they're headed. Um, so let's begin in chapter 6, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. He says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Let's just stop there in verse 3 and and tackle a couple of things because there's even some words here, some terminology here that we need to be clear that we understand. Um, The issue is that people in the church are taking each other to court. Um, They're taking each other to court about things related to money and finances predominantly as a way to obtain money and finances from you know, finances from one another. Um, so he uses this term, he says, dare you to go to, to law before the unrighteous, or your version may say Gentiles, um, instead of the saints. He's making this difference between those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and believe in him and those who have not. He uses this term saints. Saints means, um, you know, the word saint means to be, you know, set apart or to be sanctified. Um, it's it's one who's in that, in that class or in that category. Um, but it, it, it's just used in a general way in the New Testament to describe those who have put their faith in Jesus, those who are believers in Jesus. It's not a special class of Christians who have obtained, you know, a certain um, level of spirituality that they get classified as saints. No, it's all of those who are, Believers in Jesus Christ. That's how the word is used in the New Testament. Um, in his, you know, historically, that word gets changed to have a different definition uh, that's used by many today. But we need to, as we're you know studying the Word of God, we need to understand the words that the Bible uses and the the proper definition, you know, definitions of those words, so that we do not put a cultural lens onto this. Um, You know, our own cultural lens onto this, but we're putting, um, you know, the Word of God's lens onto us and seeing it as it really is. Um, So this is just, you know, generally believers in Jesus. And he says, saints will judge the the world. He says, do not know. He just asks these questions. Uh, You know, why do you do this? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And that the saints, he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, apparently, this is something that Paul had, you know, taught. Remember, he's over two years in the city of Corinth. He's got a lot of time to teach, you know, everything, really. Um, and so he's laying out, you know, everything that they need to, you know, understand. And so he's, I think, in many ways, just reminding them of things that he's previously taught to them. Um, you know, because I think a lot of people, even today, followers of Jesus, would read those words and go, wait, I didn't know that I was going to be you know, in the future, judging the world or or judging angels. What are you you talking about, Paul? You know, that that could be a, a common reaction of people reading this for the first time today. But again, understand the context. Paul's been with these people for a long time, and he's had an opportunity to teach them many different things. So he's saying, you know, it's this reality. This is this true statement that in the future... You know the, the true believers in Corinth are going to be judging the world, they're going to be judging um, angels, that that is the future. And if that's your future, then shouldn't you be able to handle these small conflicts between people within the church over what's called you know, trivial cases or you know, small matters? There's just a couple things I want to say to this that I, that I think are important here for us um, to understand. One is that, you know, when we have this idea of eternity or, or well, things in the future and things in eternity, um, you know, we can often have this idea that once we're with Jesus, you know, we just kind of all sit around. We might sing some praise songs and hang out, right? But I want you to think back to the garden think back to Adam being placed in the garden and he's in, you know, this relationship with God where, you know, in the cool and the eve you know, Adam and then Eve, you know, they walk with God, Right? You know, Adam and Eve are, are worshipers of, of God. They're in relationship, in communion with him. That's what, you know, they're really, God made humans in his image for that purpose, that we would worship him. But notice when he put Adam in the garden, he also gave Adam tasks. He gave Adam work to do, you know, to name everything. You know, then to tend the garden, to, to work the garden. And, you know, he, this activity that takes place. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in the future, that God had, you know, in the present and in the future, God has work for us to do. He has tasks. We're to worship and we're to work, and those are two primary things. They're not the only things that we were created for, but they're two primary things that we were created for. You know, many times we don't like work, not because it's work, but because sin has corrupted work. And sin's corrupted us and our view of work, you know, and, all, and, and you know, we find certain, you know, certain work to be unpleasant, certain work we only have to do because there is sin you know, in the world, Uh, and so sin corrupts work, but work itself is good and something that we should look forward to, something in the present we should strive to do for Jesus and in the future that we look forward to doing, Um, and those types of work may change, but here and now, be preparing yourself for a future where you have responsibilities So these are huge responsibilities. It says you're going to judge the world, you're going to judge angels. You know, and, and last week we spent a good bit of time you know, understanding um, you know, about judging and what that means for us um, today and, and how most people misunderstand what judging is and when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate, what Jesus means when he's talking about that, what you know, we have in the rest of the, of the New Testament as we read it, and those things are not in conflict in any way. Um, so if you missed that message last week, uh, I encourage you to go back and even just listen to that part about judging, because that's an important section, to have that understanding and, and view correctly. So let's move on from that and read verses 4 through 8. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brethren. Okay. When he says, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? That's you know, he's already... Said that in verse one, how does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous one? You know, how do you take these things before those who are not followers of Jesus? These issues that are between brothers, um, these lawsuits that you're bringing against one another—that that in itself is a defeat. Uh, it's a defeat against them. And he he gives a couple of questions here. You know, first he says, "Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers?" So, basically, the Apostle Paul here is telling the church, you know, handle your business. Handle your own business. It's not that difficult what is being asked of you. You know, they should have a higher standard for themselves than the Roman judicial standard would have for them. With its morality and its ethics, the church's standards should be much higher than that, and they should be much more equipped because they have the Holy Spirit to discern between what is right and wrong. They have the Holy Spirit and they have the scriptures that are written, and they should be able to understand in these situations and to discern what is right and what is wrong in these things. What is going to be honoring to Christ in these situations of conflict? The fact that the conflict exists in the first place is a failure, but when it happens, you know, it not being handled properly is another failure, and really what's going on here significantly is that there's a leadership gap in the church at Corinth, and it's really interesting because many of Paul's letters are written, you know, it's like, to the elders, or to the elders and the deacons and the saints. You know, and you know, it's like written to the elders specifically and the saints in general in the church. Like to a leadership, you know, if you view, view it that way. You know, a lot of Paul's letters are written, you know, to the leadership and the rest of the body. But here, when you see literally the beginning of the book of Corinth, it's just to the church as a whole. The elders aren't mentioned specifically. And, you know, Paul was there long enough for elders, you know, to be established. And, it, you know, we read in the book of Acts that in every church, you know, they went back and they established, you know, elders, you know, leadership, you know a plurality of leadership in every local church. So there's obviously, you, you, you know, I, I think it's safe to assume that the elders exist, but they're doing such a poor job at this point that they can't even be addressed Separately from the rest. It's like Paul just has to just say, This is for everybody. This is for the whole church here because these guys are apparently falling down on their job in such a significant way that they're not even addressed specifically. That's got to hurt when he says, You know, imagine you know, somebody with the title of elder there and, uh, you know, or the position, I should say. It's not really so much about title, but about the, the responsibilities of it is, you know, can there be no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute? You know, they should have many people in their church that are wise enough to settle this dispute. And Paul says, do you not have anybody? And then he says, you know, it would be better for you to suffer wrong. And, and really this echoes, you know, the words of Jesus that we have. Um, you know, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount in our house fellowships back in Matthew 5. And he talks about, you know, even in in a context where it's, you know, a Roman soldier commanding you to go an extra, you know, to go a mile that you would go an extra mile. Or somebody, you know, asks for one piece of your clothing. You go ahead and give him that one and another one. If somebody slaps you on, you know, your right cheek, you offer him the other cheek. Um, You know, these sort of things. But now these are brothers in the church. And he's saying, hey, you know, isn't it better for you just to suffer wrong? Wouldn't it be better for you to be defrauded? It's like, instead of you know, dragging the name of Jesus, like your own reputation and the name of Jesus through the mud, wouldn't it be better just to be like, okay, dude, you win. You want it, you have it. Wouldn't that be a better approach? And so sometimes we need to understand that losing is winning. It might be losing in the short term in order to win in the long term. Sometimes, sometimes losing is winning. Um, sometimes you're willing to lose something small for the sake of something bigger. Now, before we move on, I, I need to make one little asterisk and just a call not to abuse Scripture. Because again, the context. These are you know, smaller matters. These are financial you know, disagreements and disputes between you know, brethren you know, for personal gain and profit. These are not crimes like, you know, murder or people who are sexual predators or things of that nature. Paul is not saying to avoid, you know, the judicial process, you know, in those matters or that the church should just, you know, deal with that in-house. But again, people will always look to, you know, abuse the scripture and to make excuses, and so, you know, we, you know, in some denominations, in some places, you know, the church has viewed it as, oh, well, that's, you know, and I'm using that term church in this context very loosely, but groups of people will, you know, that have the name of churches will say, well, you know, we'll just handle this in-house, we'll move this guy to another place, this per, you know, we'll hide this person over here, we'll just kind of shuffle the deck a little bit, nobody know, that way the reputation of our group isn't, our organization is not hurt. You know, and that's happened in both Catholic and Protestant um, groups at pretty significant levels, and it's awful. It's awful. And these verses here to use these as an, as an excuse for that would be nothing um, but an abuse of scripture and just just a horrific abuse of scripture at that. Uh, so we need to be very careful with these things. Okay. That being said, let's move on to some more of these issues. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, hold on a second here. Yeah. Big time. Big time verses in terms of seriousness and just like, he's going to lay down a hammer here, but we need to make sure we get it right. Okay, he's going to lay down a hammer. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, need to understand the sin here. Let's talk about sin for a minute. We need to understand what's being said here and what's not being said here. First, I just want to make a, a general statement as we talk about sin, and don't be confused by it. But the statement is all sin is the same and sins are different. Okay? Must make that statement just to begin with. All sins are the same in that all sins separate you from God. All sins are separating. All sins, any, just committing one sin means that you are not able to be in the presence of God. As a person without Christ, just one sin means that you cannot be in the presence of God. Just one. Because God is holy. Sin cannot be in his presence. So all sin separates. But there are sins that are Um, particular list of sins where God says, you know, these things are an abomination or these things God hates. And certain sins have different characteristics. Some particularly go against the nature of God and the way that he made things. And those are especially grievous to God. Um, And some sins obviously have a greater impact on on the sinner and on others. Right? Um, You know, a, a little kid taking a cookie out of a cookie jar that, when mommy said not to, or daddy said not to, is a sin, and it is serious. It little different consequences than when you know somebody takes a gun and shoots somebody else in the head. Okay, different consequences for that. Different you know, a different level of seriousness uh, for what is you know what sort of punishments are meted out for those things. All right, and, and let's not, I mean, again, all sin is offensive to God, but let's not make it to where God doesn't know the difference between those two things. Like we do, but God doesn't. You know, God understands the difference and the gravity of the nature of some of these things. The problem that we have is that certain sins are in a in, in particular list that we would maybe not put there because we enjoy them or because we participate in them. Like pride, okay, you know, it's like, oh, I'm cool with the, wait, the pride one. Wait a second, wait, 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 wait. I know I struggle with that one. So, that maybe that are you sure that one should be on the list? On, um, you know, let's just think about those things. But now another thing that we need to get at here is that Paul is talking about th- these are are a, a way to describe a person's like, character and even beyond that. Like, this is who they are at their core. And it's a continuous way of being. It's not talking about um even a, a follower of Jesus who, you know, stumbles, falls and commits a particular sin, is grieved over that sin, uh, repents of it, and moves on. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about, you know, people who are, for example, who are sexually immoral, that that is just, that is who they are, they continue to do it, they don't feel bad about that, they, don't, they don't, aren't convicted about that, they just keep going on and on and on with it. There's no fight against it. If, they, if there's any sort of guilt, it's only about the human consequences and repercussions. It's not any sort of worrying that they've offended a holy God or any of those sorts of things. And it, it marks those who don't believe in God, you know, who, do, who don't believe in Jesus for salvation. It, and Jesus himself said, and you will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits, right? That there's a difference. You know, you should be able to, And there should be able to tell the difference between those who believe in Jesus and those who make no claim to believe in Jesus. Should be able to tell the difference between you know, those two people. And if you can't, then that's a terrible thing. And I think that that's kind of what the Apostle Paul is getting out at here. It's like you guys are going so far in your, you know, you, you're looking just like the world that you were saved from. You're beginning to look just like the world that you were saved from. And that's a significant problem. That's a significant problem. And he, so again, he hits things. Look at the list. The sexually immoral, so he's just broad, like general sexual immorality. Idolaters, those thi- you know, people who take things and, and worship other things in God's place—usually involves taking and making some sort of image to bow down in front of. But I don't think it's exclusive to that. To be broader to that, because you know, what did, what did God say? You shall have no other gods before me. So putting other things in front ahead of God's place. Nor adulterers, okay, those are people who, you know, at least one of the, of the people involved in that relationship is married to another, has made a commitment, you know, before God and other, other humans that, you know, this is my person who shall become one, and that is being violated. It says men who practice homosexuality, that's what the ESV says here. Um, the Greek, it, it's catamites and, and sodomites. So that's the feminine and the masculine roles in homosexual acts. Nor thieves. So these are people who just—they're always stealing. Nor they're greedy people who are always just trying to get more and more and more for themselves. You see, that's one where we go. Wait a second. Greedy in the list with these other things because a lot of people, especially conservative, southern United States. Don't have an issue with certain things on this list until maybe you get to greedy and go, but my whole life is about putting more money in my bank account. Wait a second. Greedy. Nor drunkards. It's not a person who, you know, just got drunk, but a person who is always a drunkard they're a slave to it, there's no freedom from it, there's no, there's really, I mean, I I think what we're, again, getting at here, the person doesn't mind being that. That's just what they want to be. Nor revilers, nor swindlers, people who are constantly cheating. People who are constantly stirring up trouble and people who are constantly cheating will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, and, you know, we, we look at this and it's, one of those things where, you know, I think many of us want to say, wait, 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 wait. Time, Time out, time out. You know, how bad are these things really? But the Apostle Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Now, why is he having to say that? Culture. The Roman culture that they're in. Think about the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth... You know, it has a worship to Aphrodite. Which basically, prostitution, sexual acts are part of the worship to the city's God. Okay? That comes right there with it. You can't separate the the, the people of that city. You cannot separate worship from sexuality. That's the culture. Again, the influence, what's influenced this Roman culture is the Greek culture, and you know, Corinth is in you know, the Greek part, even so it's more Greek, even. Plato, you know, writes about how wonderful homosexual love is. Thirteen of the 14 you know, first emperors of Rome are either homosexual or bisexual. 13 to 14. We're not, not maybe that sure, maybe we just don't have evidence about number 14. Okay. 13 or 14. Nero, who's in this time, and things are about to get ugly, and that's going to play some into the context in our next chapter, but Nero is about to marry, you know, or, or has married, depending on exactly when this is written, a young boy, which wasn't considered bad or weird or anything. It was just a little odd in all the you know, pomp and circumstance that they had surrounding the marriage, That's the cultural context that this is being written in. So think about Paul. The man has some guts. He is a Roman citizen, and he is subject to Roman law. And you're not supposed to say bad things about the emperor or any emperors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he's sitting there talking about sins that all of their leaders have committed. And, and he's talking about the sins, the sexual immorality, about the worship that's involved in you know worshiping the you know the gods of their of their city, and he says, people who do these things, you know, that's basically that's evidence of their unbelief, and they're unrighteous, and they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Bottom line, don't be deceived about it. That's intense. That's intense because when it comes right down to it when it comes a lot about these things you know when we're in a culture where you know it's no longer viewed as abnormal or anything wrong with you know boyfriend girlfriend living together and of course they're going to of course you're going to live together and of course you're going to have sex because how do you know if you're compatible or not if you don't is a mentality of course you're going to do these things. So it's difficult especially when these things are even rampantly taking place you know in churches for people to go hey just need to remind everybody that that's a sin that that's wrong. You know and and what we're being pressed on, you know, in our day and age with you know homosexuality to say that it's a sin puts you in a category as someone who you know you're a person you're a, you're a hater, you're a person who you know, is, is, you're basically the wicked person. You're the, you're the person who has all sorts of hate in your heart. Well, now, we also have to counter that. There's been a lot of people who have claimed the name of Jesus who have maybe rightly called things sin, but done so in such a, the wrong way that they've made it very difficult for us just to have the position without being labeled as such. But that does not give us or any person who claims, and remember last week in chapter 5, there was the one who takes the name of a brother. Takes the name of being part of the church. No one who takes the name of being part of the church has a right to say these things that God has said are sinful and to now make them okay. But yet you find many people who claim the name of Christ who will say, it's totally fine for you to look at pornography. It's totally fine for you to you know, sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend. It's totally fine for you to be involved in a homosexual relationship. And that as long as it's in love, Jesus is cool with it. And that's the message that is being preached in many quote-unquote churches today. And it leaves a lot of people confused and misinformed. Uh, And there's a reason the Bible says, let not many of us be teachers, knowing we shall receive a greater condemnation, a greater judgment. And it's a terrible thing for those who teach people that their sin is not sin. That's a terrible thing. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, because there's people who commit these acts. You know, you got the drunkard who, you know, is, is sad that he got, you know, he fell and hit his head. He's upset about the wound. Okay? But that doesn't cause any sort of change in behavior or any seeking of help. It's just on to the next party, right? Same thing with these other things. A person might be upset or sad that you know, their sexually immoral relationship was broken, got broken apart, or that they received some sort of disease. Sad they got the disease, but not sad about the acts that caused the disease. There's a difference between those two things. But there's great hope here. Verse 11, and such were some of you. To the church at Corinth, hey, some of you used to be sexually immoral. Some of you used to be idolaters. Some of you used to be adulterers. Some of you used to be practicing homosexuals. Some of you used to be thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, etc. You used to be these things. But you were washed. And it's interesting there, the Greek is either, it's, It's a willing participant, whether it's active or passive is a little bit uh, difficult to, to figure out, but there's a willingness. It's like, hey, you wanted this. You wanted it. You were washed. But the result is that they were sanctified, and this is God's doing. God has set them apart from the world and put them into his family. You were justified. Again, this is God's doing. You were declared righteous by God. You were declared righteous by God. You are, you know, legally in God's eyes, a just person. You are not under condemnation. How did that happen? Because you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's saying here, the Lord, the, 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 the true king. Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. And we, so we see all of the Trinity involved in the this salvation, this salvation process. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So here in verses 12 you know, twelve and on a bit um, the Apostle Paul has to address some, some um, counter views counter arguments. That phrase all things are lawful for me is something that the people are saying as a slogan and as an excuse for their sin. Whether they're, they want to be divided, whether they want to Um, excuse a sexual sin, whether they they want to take a brother to court. All things are lawful for me. They're liberty. I'm a free person in Christ. I can do whatever I want to do. All things are lawful for me. So how does the Apostle Paul say this? And they could even be saying in the sense of I'm not breaking Roman law. It's not against the law for me to have these sexual relationships. It's not against the law for me to sue this other person. In fact, courts kind of encourage that. It's not against the law for me to do these things. Paul Paul says, but not all things are helpful. There's a difference between what you can do and what you should do. And then he says, I will not be dominated by anything. It's like you think you're free, but yet you're becoming a slave again to these old sins. So once you've been free, don't go back to bondage. And we have that theme throughout, you know, in the New Testament. If you were a slave to sin and now you've been freed by Christ, don't voluntarily go back into a place of bondage again. Do not be dominated by anything. Here's another phrase they had. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So what they're saying is, hey, it's only natural when you get hungry that you eat. Right? So it's only natural that when you have a sexual desire, sexual urges, that you would fulfill those. Same thing. That's their argument. It's not the right argument. Because Paul says... God will destroy both one and the other. Basically, you know, he's talking about the temporalness of the human body. But then the body is not meant for sexual immorality. He's like, yes, it might have these appetites, but it wasn't designed originally for sin, but it was designed for, again, for the Lord. You know, you're supposed to worship God. The Lord for the body. You're supposed to, you know, God made us so be in relationship with him, not so that we'd be involved with sexual sin. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And what he's saying there is, you know, God made us with physical bodies and God's not just done with these things. Like, yes, it's going to be renewed as we see even later in 1 Corinthians 15. But, you know, we're meant, even though we're spiritual beings, we're meant to be housed in a physical body. That's part of what it is to be a human being. And, you know, you're going to have a new body as Christ, you know, was raised and received a new body and is physical has a physical to him, so will we forever and ever. So understand that. And then he, he's gonna finish with these with these thoughts, 15 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So again, he's addressing those who are true believers. So you're you know, you're really a follower of Jesus. You are part of the body of Christ. Do you not know? Remember, he says that. Multiple times, I think about six times, that specific phrase, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So let's just stop there for a minute. What's he saying? There's a spiritual union that that's a sexual sexual act between two people is more than just a physical act. It's bigger than that. It's more important than that because God designed us, even in you know, Adam and Eve in the garden, and the two shall be, you know, the two became one flesh. Two shall become one. And rightly, intimately joined a husband and his wife is the closest picture that you can have to the relationship between Christ and the church, though obviously that's not physical and not sexual. But it's the closest thing we have on this earth, you know, in its proper context, to to show the bond that the church and Christ is to have. So he's saying, you know, you can't just be doing these things in your body and think that they're unrelated to the rest of your reality. These things are important. He who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. So that's the instruction. These sexual things that are starting to get into the church, flee from them. Run from them. Get away from them. Don't participate in them. Every... Every sin a person commits is outside the body. I think that's another one of those phrases that, is, that has been used as an excuse. Um, remember what we've had, all, we've had already. All things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Here's another one. A, hey, every sin is outside my body. Like it's not really, you know, it's not really so personal. And that's rejected. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And if you're a follower of Jesus, think about the implications, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Do you not know that? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You know, in the Old Testament... There were times when God would show himself to a person. You got Moses in the burning bush. For, let's take that as an example. And Moses takes his, you know, his shoes off and he bows down. Why? Because he's on holy ground. So now we have Christ and the reality of Christ and Christ is with us. We don't view, you know, some people view buildings like a particular, oh, you know, you're in a holy place. And We don't, we don't have that perspective because we view the church as the body of Christ. Well, what that means is, is that, as, as Paul says here, we collectively, but we also individually house the Spirit of God. We are the temple of the Spirit of God. Your body is holy ground. And therefore should not be defiled through sexual immorality or through other, any, any other sin. You know, you, you, you shouldn't make the temple of God drunk. That makes sense. So that's what's being said here in this context: that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. And we need to think about that, of Riley. You know, because you know you got guys working out, they're pumping iron, they're like, "Yep, my temple right here, temple." You know, sort of thing. It's like, come on, that doesn't have anything. You know, that not have anything to do with your relationship with God or you know your ha- you know your body being God's house or anything. That's 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 usually about ladies. Check out my guns. You know, that's that's normally what that's about. You know, not 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 looking in any particular directions at all. But, okay, I'm kidding. <laughs> hey, I'm kidding because everybody in the room's going looking at the guys who work out. And there's nothing wrong with working out. The Bible actually says, you know, um, physical exercise is profitable for a little. It means it does a little bit of good. It means it should get a little bit of your priority. Right? But, um, woo! here we go. Coming back to this. Coming back to this. Every one of us, regardless of whether, you know, we bench been press five pounds or 500, if you're a follower of Jesus, your body is the temple of God. It is holy. And it should be treated as holy. Particularly when it comes to this issue of sin. That this is the argument that he's making two huge arguments here of why all of this is so important. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. You're not your own. Think about this, I mean just on a very logical way. God created you and then you, you know, because of your sin, you were corrupted, you were defiled, etc. And so then he sends his only begotten son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins to purchase you back. Even though he already owned, you know, created you and therefore owns you. But he purchases you back through the precious blood of Jesus. So really he owns you twice. If you're a follower of Jesus, God owns you twice. He owns me twice. And therefore, we are to glorify God in our bodies. We shouldn't be walking around using our bodies to commit sins of any kind. We should be fighting against sin in our lives. And we should be trying to glorify God in our bodies. And why ultimately is that? We go back to the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus, and he says, let them see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So as we glorify God in how we live, then others who are in the process of coming to Christ can see that and glorify God and that even move them steps further and closer towards Jesus. So we need to keep this big picture in mind of eternity, of our future responsibilities, that we're going to judge the world, we're going to judge angels, that we're the temple of God, that God dwells within us, and that that's, and that, you know, we were bought at a price. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't cheap. And so we're to glorify God in our bodies. And so that's why the church at Corinth is being pushed, hey, you guys got to do something about these things. You got to do something about your division. You got to do something about your sexual immorality. You got to do something about brothers taking each other to court, you know, even, you know dragging the name of Christ through the mud in front of the whole world. You guys have to do something about these things. And there's the reason, the reasons can't get any bigger. You're the temple of the Holy God, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are bought with the precious blood of Jesus. And, And honestly, if that isn't enough motivation for us, to wake up and go, man, I need to fight harder against sin today, tomorrow, this week, throughout my my life. But, I mean, right here and now, oh, if that's not a wake-up call for, i got to fight harder against sin in my life, then what could be? If you being the temple of the Holy Spirit and being bought with the precious blood of Jesus, is it enough reason? What could possibly be enough reason? What could possibly be enough reason? And so that comes down to that indication where, you know, basically he's saying that those who are unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, you know, this has to resonate with the true believers in the church at Corinth. This has to resonate with them. If it doesn't resonate, then that's probably a sign that that person isn't one of God's people to begin with if that call doesn't resonate. So as we take the bread and we take the cup this morning, let's remember that we were bought at a price. The precious you know, blood and body of the Lord Jesus and it wasn't cheap. Yeah, and, and Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we can just go and live however we want. He died on the cross so that he would own us. So that we would glorify God. We're not our own. And if we come to that reality, then that does change a lot of things for us and how we view ourselves and what we really want out of life. What we're pursuing. But this morning, let's be satisfied Put this the right way. Let's be satisfied with that reason enough to fight against sin. To confess whatever sins that we have and to fight against them is that the Holy Spirit lives within you if you're a follower of Jesus. The blood of Jesus paid your price. Let that be enough to cleanse and to make a renewed commitment to fight the good fight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Um, And yet, if we're honest, we look at these verses, if we look at these words, and we think about how many times we've sought our own benefit, how many times we haven't been willing to take the small loss for the bigger picture, how many times we've compromised with our world and how our world views things, And Lord, help us not to think that our world can give us the answers about what pleases you and what doesn't please you. But God, help us to have your word penetrate our hearts and our minds and help us to see clearly as we should. Lord, help us not to make excuses for the small, what we view as small sins in our lives if we're not participating in something big. Because we know that sin is never satisfied and always seeks to grow and always seeks to destroy, no matter how little it may seem in the moment. So, Lord, even for those in whom this morning who have small things in their lives, that they're just kind of letting go. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to have you extinguish those things in us. Help us to be the temple we are designed to be and help us to value the body and blood of Jesus. We take that bread, we give you thanks, God. As we take that blood, we remember you, Jesus, and we praise your holy name, and we ask you to cleanse us, to heal us, to make us right in our fellowship with you, and that you would give us the strength to fight against sin, in our own hearts and minds specifically, so that we could be equipped to fight against it and all the damage it causes in our world. Lord Jesus, please help us, we pray. Your name, amen.